I am Jimbo Paris, and you are listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. Today we have Jill Riley, a devout Christian who transformed her life through hard work. Hello, how are you doing today? Good, how are you doing? Well, so can you give me sort of a brief summary about yourself, who you are, what you're about, and what your message is? My name is Jill Riley, and I am a podcaster. I have Post Traumatic Faith as my podcast. I'm also an author and uh, have been spent most of my adult life as a minister. And right now, I spend a lot of time just working on advocacy for those who are struggling with mental illness and also just promoting a, a healthy view of mental health. And so I, that's what I spent most of my time doing and writing and um, and working on right now. Very good. How was your life when you were first raised in North Idaho? North Idaho was interesting. I was, I actually, my history goes back to, uh, I was born in Korea and then I was adopted. I was abandoned and then I was adopted by a family in Detroit and then I was abandoned again and then I was adopted again. And so I, I had, um, I, I lived in Reno, Nevada, uh, before I lived in Idaho. And then when my mother divorced my father, then we moved to North Idaho. North Idaho was, t- you know, it was, it's a beautiful area. If you ever, ever go up there, it's just a really picturesque resort area. But uh, I was raised extremely poor and we, we didn't have much. And, uh, you know, one of my, one of my really prominent memories of childhood was uh, a friend of the family's used to go dumpster diving and he would pull out um, fruits and vegetables that the grocery stores had thrown out and bring them to our house. And we would cut out the worms and cut off the bad pieces and, and can, the, can the fruits and vegetables for us to be able to eat during the winters. So uh, we, were, we were very poor. I was, it was also the height of the white supremacist movement, which was centered in North Idaho. And so I have memories of uh, just bombings and uh, skinheads marching down the street and burning crosses on the lawn. And, and so it was a really tumultuous area uh, and neglectful. And I dealt with um, a lot of abuse and, and, and still dealing with the aftermath of, the, of that. And so it was a really violent household. And so that's, that's kind of what North Idaho was like, I have a lot of memories of just not, not really pleasant memories of being there. What sort of Now, definitely those are some struggles and you're a very strong person, but what sort of began to move and guide your faith out of those sort of areas? Well, husband and so forth. Yeah, I was raised in the church and raised in several different denominations or, or sections of the church. But when I was very young, I had faith in God and I had, I had a, a strong faith. But when I was 14, I felt just a really, a really clarion call to serve 
serve my faith out in the church and in the organized organized religion and and I began a bible study at the high school and had like 50 students show up and just uh you know, just started started working working out my faith there, and then went to Bible college. And at 17 years old, I was in Bible college and working as a youth pastor and in a Korean community, and uh, helped start a church when I was 19 in the Seattle area, and uh, just found my home there and and really loved it, and did that until six years ago. And do you think being a Korean may have impacted your life in some sort of way when pursuing your works through Bible study and kind of becoming a good minister? You know, it's interesting. The the Korean kids uh, that I became friends with in Seattle area were like, oh, Jill, you're just so Korean, you know, your work ethic and, and who you are and, and all of that, you know, you're, you're just so Korean. And I never knew what that meant because I was raised in a white family, but I did I did feel like with the Korean community, I felt like I just fit, like it was this missing piece for me. And I I felt like these were my people and, and I was, I belonged to that community. So it was kind of odd because I was, I wasn't raised around Koreans. There was no ethnic diversity in, in North Idaho because everybody was so frightened of the white supremacist movement that was happening there. And so to become part of a Korean community um, culturally was really weird when I was, you know, 17, but it was, it was just like comfort, like sinking into a comfortable couch. That's how I felt about being part of the Korean community. So I don't know if it had uh, impact on my faith or my, the way I worked or anything, but I do know that um, being a Korean is a part of me that was neglected for a long time that kind of came alive when I was in college. Now, how was college different? You know, did you where did you go to in college? And did that sort of separate you from that old life you had in Idaho? It did. I was, uh, you know, there were several things that happened at the end of my senior year. The state took custody of me. I was in foster care. And uh, eventually my mother just completely abandoned me and said she didn't want to have anything else to do with me. And so I was basically not legally, but basically emancipated. And so going to college, I was on my own. I had uh, a foster family that that still is a part of my life. And so I, I really became um, kind of an independent. And so that, that kind of steered my direction work-wise and, and life, life-wise. So it was really, it was very different because I was, I was basically on my own. How did it feel like emotionally for you to be on your own? Because you know, being adopted twice, going through all of this, there must have been, you know, a whole pool of emotions building inside of you. How did you sort of work through those and kind of channel those into a positive thing? Yeah. Because that's a know, lot of negativity. Yeah. I I worked so hard. I've been a workaholic my whole life. And um, I worked 
I worked hard. I worked hard at school. I worked hard at being a pastor. Um, and people used to ask me all the time, you know, Joe, what are you running from? You know, why, why do you work so hard? And, and what do you, you know, what are you running from? And, and that used to really offend me because I was like, you know, I'm just working hard and I'm just doing what I think is the best for the best for me and doing the best job that I can possible. And, but really it wasn't until, it wasn't until several years ago that I really hit a wall. And, and part of what came out of that was that I was indeed masking complex PTSD and some anxiety and depression and, and all of these other things that were happening in my world that I was compensating by being a workaholic, by, by just, uh, keeping myself so busy so I didn't have to think and I didn't have to feel things. So um, that really became my lifestyle. And I mean, I, I did my master's at 21 years old and got married at 20. We had four kids in five years. I mean, we just, I just kind of ran at this constant, really frenetic pace. And so, um, that that just kind of became my lifestyle. And so separating myself from the negativity of my childhood was by working hard, but it didn't, I didn't outrun it. I didn't outrun the negative effects of my childhood. And you say you didn't outrun it, but you did move on from it somehow. Can you kind of get into how you kind of evolved into the person you are today? Yeah, you know, I did you know, it's kind of, there's kind of a dichotomy there, right? Like I, I didn't outrun it in the sense that my mental health was affected. And I, I always struggled with depression and always struggled with sadness and struggle with abandonment and feeling alone and the anxiety. I mean, I used to work so hard until my, my chest hurt and I'd be curled up in a ball on the floor. And so the the after effects of my of my childhood were there the flip side of that is is that i had great success in my work i had success in writing i had success as a business consultant and as a photographer and all these other things that i did i i did with excellence to the best of my ability and so i i did find success there but emotionally I didn't outrun it. And where do you think your work ethic came from, in a sense, from the whole you're so Korean thing? You know, did, <laughs> did it sort of come from that or? You know, I will say that is one of the positive effects that I did. One of the maybe the few positive um, regards that I do have from my mother is that is that she was a if anything, she was a hard worker and raised three kids on her own, basically. And uh, so she, she worked hard. And I think, I think I learned that from her. And, and we always as, as children were um, in negatively motivated, but motivated to be the best at everything that we could be. And so uh, I, I think I carried that on into my adult life. And you said you're a minister and what do you think, what is your, what are your values as a minister and what do you sort of preach most and what did you want to preach? 
Well, you know, I'm not a minister now. I haven't worked for the past six years as a minister, but I hope I hope what I communicated was was a sense of grace, you know, that there is to give yourself grace, which I wasn't good at practicing, but to give yourself grace. And um, so I hope that was an overwhelming message of what I preached and taught. I hope justice was a part of what was what was caught in my messages and in my lifestyle, um, justice and equality. I hope that was a part of a part of the value that was caught. And, and I really, I really wanted people and wanted myself to be a consummate learner, to always be absorbing, absorbing things that would positively affect your life and positively affect your health and your mental health and your spiritual and emotional health. And so I I think there's great value in not being the smartest person in the room, you know, in, in always learning and being willing to learn from other people and other sources. And so I hope that was a part of of what I taught also. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think back to, um, I, I think back to high school and teaching a bunch of kids in high school. I have no idea what I taught them. I, you know, I, I have no idea, but I do know that I wanted to learn to be better at it. And so I hope that's something that was communicated through my life of faith and service. What was it like starting three churches <laughs> in Washington and Montana. And, and which Washington is this? Forgive me if I'm... Oh, Washington State. Washington State. Yes. So at 19, I fell into this group of, it was three other guys and myself, and we started this church in Seattle. And and uh, that was really a high point in my career. It was so much fun. The, the families that we worked with, they became like our family. I mean, I was a young single um you know, person trying to help these guys start a church. And uh, it was, it was just a rocking good time. We, um, we bonded, we, we loved each other. We served well together and, and, and started, started this church. It was a lot of fun. And it, it didn't feel like, I think I was just kind of oblivious to, you know, the hard work because I was in college and I just thought that's what churches did. You know, I love the creativity of new churches. I love the freedom to try new things and people expecting you to try new things instead of being so stuck in tradition and, and stuck in the way that we've always done it, you know. So that was a lot of fun. I helped start a church in Bozeman, which is two hours away from where I'm at now. And I drove back and forth and that had a really um, strong leadership team. And I was kind of supplementary in helping to structure leadership and helping to structure their education programs so that I didn't carry as, as big of a weight on that one as I did on the other two, but it was, it was exciting to be a part of it. Again, just the creativity and the freedom to create and people expecting you to to do that was was pretty, pretty neat. Um, and then the third church, uh, we started ourselves and we started it out with an art studio and we hosted local artists. And uh, the studio was actually where we started to meet as a church, uh, meet as a Bible study and uh 
and just kind of grew from grew from there. That was a positive experience in the sense that it was the first one that I had led myself. It was positive because of the denomination that I had become a part of. They were super supportive financially and and leadership wise. And so that was that was a real positive. It was it was hard on me in the fact that the community that we were serving uh, with a lot of um, homeless and addiction and mental health crisis and um, marginalized folks uh, who came with a lot of stuff that they were dealing with added to my own trauma uh, that I was carrying. And so that that is what overwhelmed me was my overworking for one and and then the trauma that I was carrying from, you know, suicides and suicide attempts and spousal abuse. And I mean, just a lot of stuff that was happening in our community that I was carrying. And so they were three, three very dramatically different um, situations. And my role in them was very different. But again, I I love the world of of church planting, church starting, because of the like I said, the freedom and the creativity. And how was it like specifically working in a church for the first time ever? Was it eye opening? Was it shocking? No, it wasn't shocking because I was raised. I mean, I was the daughter of the church. You know, I was raised in that in a faith community. I think. You know, people dealing with people in crisis is shocking all the time. Learning, you know, we had a we had a situation in our first church that a grandfather had molested all of his grandchildren. His son committed suicide because of the molestation. Then he went to prison, and I mean, there was just this this huge crisis happening, and that was extraordinarily educational because. I didn't know what to do with that. You know, luckily I had other people that helped helped us lead through that. But I think dealing with crisis is always it is always shocking. The amount of work that it took to to start a church and to get an organization off the ground wasn't shocking, but it was it was formidable for sure. But I think as a pastor you know, I just, I just dove in with, um, with both feet and, and, uh, just learned along the way and had some great mentors. I, you know, I was lucky in the fact that, you know, starting this, the first church and working at the the very first church that I worked at, I was still in college. So I could go to my professors and say, Hey, I don't know what to teach here. And I don't know what to do here and, and help me out with some creativity, you know, in this situation. So I had resources available to me right away. So that was definitely helpful. And how was it like being mentored as a pastor? How did you slowly become a a pastor? Was it more seminary school or were you kind of taught? Both. Um, You know, I I got a bachelor's in... um, in Christian ministry and was mentored by, like I said, some professors and my lead pastor that I was working with and, and others. Uh, and, and that was, that was good. I, I'll have to say that I, I don't have the typical story. Every, it seems like every pastor has a story where they were, um, 
uh, sidelined or or not not treated well in their in their parish ministry and. I did not have that experience. I have always had good lead pastors and good uh, good partner partner pastors, and so um, I've been really really fortunate in that. But I think having mentorship um, and again being willing to learn from people is is key to any kind of a longevity for any kind of a career, but certainly in human services, uh, you need to learn from other people. So I think, I think mentorship is really key and I really appreciate people who have, uh, given to me and leaned into, into me and helped me to become, um, better at the art of serving people. What were some of your greatest achievements and struggles as a pastor? You know, I think as a woman in leadership roles, especially in the church, the church is struggling to keep up with with gender roles and letting letting women lead. This church is still in a lot of in a lot of areas antiquated in that. And so, as a young female learning to lead and to be powerful and to be to be respected is a, is a learning curve. And I think that that was definitely a challenge. And, and I used to, you know, I never wanted to be one of those people that one of those women that carried a chip on their shoulder, like you have to respect me because I'm in leadership. I wanted to earn respect, but but learning, learning that and to deal graciously with that and with those who don't understand your call and your purpose is, is a challenge. I think the other challenge is one that is not unique to the church, but is, uh, is part of the dialogue of being a woman is the challenge of raising a family and being a caregiver um, to your children and to your family at the same time as building a career. And so that was kind of a constant rub for me, trying to figure that out and trying to assess who needed me more at what time. And like I said, we had four kids in five and a half years. So we had a lot of babies all at once. Uh, luckily, I am not the primary source of income in my family. And so I was able to I was able to work part time and for a long time and still still work at what I loved and still be able to help with, you know, raise my family. I was also lucky in the sense that um, I finished my master's mostly before we had kids. And uh, so most of my education and I front loaded it before we started a family. And so and so that definitely helped. And I think finances of working with a church, working in a church are something that people don't really know or understand very much of, but uh, pastors don't get paid very much in a lot of areas. And and so you're not working for the pay, but you need the pay to live, right? So that's always a challenge. The finances of it are, 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 are a formidable challenge for sure. This is going to be kind of a a very straightforward question, but can you kind of give a general gist of how churches work in the sense, how they kind of generate revenue? Because you've helped build churches. Like, how do they 
sort of draw people in and build up revenue? What's your perspective on that? Well, I think those are two separate questions. Churches build up revenue, revenue streams from from people who give. And so startup churches have a challenge in that they usually or they hopefully gain people who don't have another church, aren't part of another church, but they're not accustomed to tithing, giving 10% of their income to the church. Um, and so tithing is the, is the dominant way that churches raise, raise money or are funded. A new church, if you come through like a denomination, like I did, uh, will have funding that comes from like a, a corporate a corporate body that helps to sustain you during your, during your initial startup. And so a a denomination will give money to new churches to help fund the salary of the leadership and help fund the building and all of that, that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's mostly how funding works. Um, the inner workings of a church, uh, generally leadership is one, one person who uh, gathers a team around them of people that are like-minded and have uh, the same purpose and wanting to establish a group. And it's, it's in a lot of senses, like starting any other kind of a business, you gather people around you that are, that are willing to support you in your efforts and willing to help get you off the ground and to be part of the, the hype and the promotion emotion and the excitement that's built around it. And then uh, you begin to gather people through, you know, your concentric circles of relationships and, and it grows, grows from there. And hopefully in that process, you have people that are skilled at music and skilled at teaching and skilled at gathering other people that are uh, good at audiovisual stuff. So you kind of desire people that will fill all of those roles because, of course, you can't do that yourself and shouldn't do it yourself, uh, all of those things. And so that's kind of that's kind of how how you begin to build that kind of an organization. What's the difference between an offering and a tithe? An offering is above and beyond your tithe. Uh, so it's a gift that is, uh, is given and, or in separate than your tithe. It's just, it's, it's a different category almost of giving. It's just a gift. A tithe is taking a 10% of your income or taking a certain percent of your income and committing it on a regular basis to the organization. So an offering in a sense is kind of like, I don't mean this in a vulgar way, but kind of a tip. Mm, a donation. Donation. Yeah, that that's the word. Okay. Donation. And yeah. there's definitely a lot of complexities running a church as a nonprofit, how do you sort of work around the taxes and all that? Well, hopefully that's some of the education that you've received in um, in seminary or in college. Working with uh, dealing with a nonprofit, being a 501c3 is different than working in a for-profit business in some regards because of the way taxation works. Churches are tax exempt. You can use salary 
uh, benefits for housing. Ministers can write off housing. Um, and so there's there's some complexities there. Hopefully you have someone that is skilled at um, finances that, that know that. Um, but other than that, it is like building any other business um, in terms of money in and money out. And uh, it, but it's it's difficult because you're starting from scratch. And so that is, you know, not different, not different from any other business that you're starting from, except that you generally don't have a large pool of money to start with. And what were some of your struggles running these street churches when it came to sort of the financial spectrum, such as offerings, donations, and those other things like tithes? Well, one of the things I was committed to in the last church called Navigate was that we would be committed to people that were marginalized, uh, people who didn't have a church. So we were, we kind of coined ourselves as the church for people who didn't have a church. We were in a place in a location in town where we were flanked by both the men's shelter and the women's shelter. And we wanted to make our, our gathering available to those people who were somewhat transient and who were um, facing crisis and difficulty. The challenge in that is that those people don't come with money and and so if you have so many people that don't come with income sources uh, and or with a education or background of giving to a church, you're constantly going to be bleeding money. And, and in, a, in a pure financial sense, it becomes an imbalance, right? And so, you know, you look for, you look for the balance in that and sometimes you have to look towards outside to outside sources outside people that will help you help you complement what you're doing so i think that's always the biggest challenge is is finding people that are willing to commit financially and you know finding partners that are willing to commit financially and what types of struggles was were your church handling specifically for example how do you kind of help Christians deal with the anti-Christian world? Hopefully Christians will will come alongside those who are non-Christians and live life in a way that becomes desirable for people who are not Christians. So by that, um, I'm saying their character and their spiritual life. Um, hopefully people will sense, um, will sense that, that, uh, positive aspects of faith and what that means to us and sense that that comes with some value. And so, you know, uh, that is, that is what we want to do. Right. And we believe, hopefully, I mean, those who are starting a church, hopefully believe in what they're doing, but believe that faith comes with a benefit. And, and so we live life and teach to that end. And so hopefully, you know, people will will just see that in your lifestyle. And how do you sort of handle this faith and this mental health in your podcast? 
You know, I have committed to looking at faith and mental health, mental illness, and not just a um, evangelical Christian aspect. And so there are people who find find their faith and their belief in all different all different aspects of life, um, whether it be meditation, their spirituality comes from different places. So um, I deal with it um, pretty loosely, but I do have in the back of my mind constantly this dialogue running because I do come from an evangelical perspective um, that uh, mental health has not always been talked about in real positive terms or real accepting terms. Mental illness has not always been accepted as a physical illness, which it is because it's part of our physicality, right? But people have, you know, there's, there's a lot of dialogue that has happened in the church that has been really damaging to those who are struggling with mental illness along the lines of pray more, pray harder, um, have more faith, worry less, and those kinds of things that those do have a grain of truth in them. But there is also the real effects of mental illness and, and real chemical imbalances and real physiological things that happen in our bodies that affect our mental health. And so in the back of my mind all the time, I do have this running, running conversation about um, how the how the evangelical church has dealt with mental illness, which and, and mental health conversations, which has not always been positive. How do you make this more positive? with your podcast? You know, hopefully it is just by talking about it. Uh, I think by the more we talk about it and the more we, we hold it right. The, the more friendly it becomes. I think uh, one of the things I was in a, I was in a um, psych hospital for almost three months. And one of the things that they used to say there was that secrets make you sick. And I think if we hold uh, mental illness as a secret and constantly try to suppress it and keep it down, I think it makes us sick as a society. I think the more that we can bring it out to into the light and talk about it, the better off we are. And when it comes to uh, what you preach and what you talk about, what do you enjoy preaching the most and what do you think what do you think what you preach what things do you preach kind of push people the most in the direction that you want them to as sort of a shepherd or a guide You know, because right now I serve as a guest speaker, so a lot of times uh, what I'm speaking is tailored to uh, kind of what a church is 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 in the midst of teaching. There is, I don't, I don't get to, um, I don't get to figure out for myself, choose for myself a lot of the kind of the global concepts of what I'm teaching. Um, But I do hope that what I'm teaching is consistently as I talk about mental health and mental illness is, is what I just said, consistently saying, let's, let's 
look at these things with compassion and with a sense of grace and a sense of wanting to be a part of the healing process and not a part of that that continues to injure people. So when I'm talking about when I'm talking about mental illness and faith in the conversation, uh, I want to communicate that we as a faith community want to hold ourselves in an open arm position where we will gather people to us that are mentally ill or struggle with mental mental illnesses in a way that is loving and gracious and kind. And how did you kind of build up your podcast initially? How did you transition from kind of running a church or if you were doing this at the same time to more of a, a business kind of media? Yeah. You know, it started out with, I decided I I was so, well, what happened was I had a mental breakdown six years ago and I had a complete mental collapse. And so I, like I said, I ended up in a, in a psych institution for three months and I was so filled with shame and with horror that I was dealing with mental illness that I was just overwhelmed with it. I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want anybody to know my diagnosis. I didn't want people to know that I was um, that I was struggling with that. And so as I became like I said, brought it into the light and became more familiar with it myself and more comfortable with it myself. I thought I need to communicate this to people. And so I decided that I was going to do a hundred day write. So every day I would write for I for a hundred days, I would write something about this. And so I really started to blog about it. And, and it was really it was really scary at first because like I said, it was a vulnerability that I didn't want to expose. I didn't want people to know what was going on because, and part of it was we had to close the church down. I lost because of that. I didn't have a job and I, my health, I couldn't work. And so I just was filled with all of this um, conflicting emotions and, and feeling shameful about, about my mental illness. So I did this hundred day, right. And I really started to open up about what was going on with me and the, and the response was really positive. So I thought, well, I could podcast this. I didn't know anything much about a podcast. I thought I could podcast it. And so last year or the year before last, I started just kind of reading parts of my blog on my podcast. And then this year, this season, starting last April, I decided that I would open it up to other people and start a dialogue. And one of the groups that I'm part of, either my podcast guest or one of them um, posted me as one of their uh, in one of their advertising and whatever. And so I ended up with all of these people that said, Hey, we want to be a part of the podcast. And so right now I have, I'm still kind of writing that wave of people. I had to go to a weekly podcast format and uh, I've recorded now through April. So uh, yeah, I just have found good support in the podcasting community of people that want to tell their stories. When it comes to telling stories, what types of stories do these people usually tell? 
Oh, you know, people have talked about the loss of divorce and how that has affected their mental health. They've talked about near death experiences. They've talked about losing, losing spouses, losing children, uh, being trafficked, uh, being molested, uh, people being abused by people in authority. Somebody was telling the story of their husband's murder and how they, um, how they overcame that that trauma and that media attention. Boy, all sorts of all sorts of stories. And why does God allow for tests of our lives specifically? So, you know, here's what I know. I know that human suffering is real and that people are innately flawed and will will afflict on other people uh, damaging damaging behaviors. Why God allows that um, to happen is a mystery that I think we will not know in this in this lifetime. What I do know is that God is present both in our suffering and in our healing and that it's a mystery in how, how God interacts with us, but that that present help will, um, will affect and can affect us in a positive and a, and a, in a hopeful trajectory. Why God allows it. I've asked that question a million times. Um, why God allowed me to go through the suffering that I went through? I don't have the answers. What I do know is that I have learned a lot. I've grown a lot, and I wouldn't be the person I am today, either without that suffering and without my faith. And did this faith of yours ever affect your personality in any shape or form? Affect my personality? I think... I don't I don't know that it affects my personality. I hope it affects my character. But I don't know that it, I don't know that personality would be the the word that I would use that it affects. How does it affect your character? Well, I think the tenets of of faith um living with um living with love and grace and acceptance and generosity and goodness and kindness and gentleness. Uh, hopefully those tenets of faith are breathed out through my life. Not all the time. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I don't live with those, with those things, you know, 24 seven where I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm the, the epitome of faith, but I hope that on a daily basis, that parts of those things breathe out through my life. Um, And, and like I said, any one of us is capable of, not behaving in ways that are consistent with our faith, but hopefully our character as an overarching story that hopefully the, the arc of my story um, carries with it that, that air of my character and who I am. 
what do you think is kind of the centered kind of root cause of a lot of these mental illness issues a lot of people have? I think the cause is overwhelmingly that people are flawed and will hurt one another. I think the cause is also that that affects our chemistry and affects our physiology in ways that are damaging and sometimes permanent and uh, often with consequence on our life. Um, I think human suffering is largely of our own doing, just our own humanity. When I listen to people on the podcast tell their stories, it is very rare if never that I've heard this just happened to me and I don't know why I suffer from mental illness. I don't know why I suffer from these things. Generally there is a root cause of somebody else being a part of that story and negatively affecting someone's story. So I think it's both. And I think we have to hold them equally um, physiology and, and humanity, but overwhelmingly, I would say people have influenced each other's mental health. And what do you think defines a Christian? How do you think someone can become a Christian? You know, people become Christians by believing in God and accepting the tenets of faith and saying, I want to be a part of that story. I want to accept that uh, Jesus Christ is and was a real person and uh, that he was part of the forgiveness of my sins and that he is he is and will be the Lord of our lives. That's how people become Christians, how they interact with their faith and their Bible um, is, is an individual journey and how people live out their faith is an individual journey. But as far as the origins of their faith, that's really where it begins. And what do you think, made you into a Christian finally through your struggle? You know, I think it it happens in stages, right? Um, I became a Christian as a child and acknowledged that Jesus Christ was Lord of my life as a child. Um, I think the forming of my faith happened through... Um, through churches and teaching in the church and youth leaders and that I think the testing of my faith and the, the critical thinking part of my faith happened as an adult. And I grew along with the people that I was teaching and I, as I was challenged and became um, more critical thinking, I think my faith grew. One of the um, really from forming parts of my faith happened when I went to do my master's. I went to a Jesuit university, so a Catholic university, and they had all these different ideas about how faith was formed and created and carried out. And it really challenged this evangelical 
box that I had been in, in a good way. And I became more open to different ways that people express their faith or worship or you know, it just, it just kind of blew the doors off of it for me where I was like, there is a whole world out there of people who believe that I don't understand that I need to know more about. So that, that really was huge for me in becoming a more critically thinking and accepting Christian. And why do you think critical thinking might be important for a Christian? Because I think that conversations like this happen and we have to be ready to give an answer for why we believe. I think conversations like this should happen. Do they always? No. But I think if somebody asks why you believe, there should be an answer. Because if we believe for no reason it really makes, it really cheapens the content of why we believe. I think there's got to be some, I think there's got to be some content to what we believe in order to share with other people. And was your podcast kind of a way of sharing this with other people and kind of, how did you begin marketing? Well, I suck at marketing, first of all. I'm really bad at promotion. I try to keep up with it, but I'm I'm learning as I go. Part of the message of the podcast is that we can have positive conversations and sharing growing learning conversations. It isn't geared towards a strict evangelical perspective because again, I wanted to hear from a, a wide variety of people. I I mostly market through social media and try to gain listeners through that. Again, I'm not very successful at that. I I keep trying my hand at different things and I, you know, occasionally hire somebody to help me, help me figure that out. But uh, it's, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. (laughs) And what were some of the, What were some of your most interesting talks that you've had on your podcast that you just personally like, not saying in general, just what you like? Personally, there was a gal I talked to um, and she was molested by her youth leader in her church. And what was what was impactful about that conversation to me was that this particular minister, and of course I take personal offense to that as a minister, because I think it's just a heinous abuse of power and authority. But this particular minister was, had done this at a previous church and they just passed him on to this church with a clean reference and said, you know, go with God and go ahead and serve in another church. And then after this came to light in their church with this particular gal, they gave him a going away party and passed him off to another church with a clean reference because they didn't want to deal with the aftermath of what had happened. And they asked her to leave the church. And so he got a going away party. They asked her to leave the church. 
And he continued on in this pattern well into her adult life where she confronted him and and his leadership said he's a changed person. There's no need for retribution. There's no need for accountability. And that really impacted me because as leaders in a faith community, I think that is um, that is just absolutely unacceptable. The gal who I talked to whose uh, husband was murdered was really impactful to me uh, because of uh, it's something that I had never thought about. The media attention that came with the murder of her husband uh, was damaging and caused great trauma to her in addition to the, the fact that she had lost her spouse. Uh, there was a gentleman I talked to from Colorado who had been trafficked as a child whose parents had trafficked him. And that was impactful to me because of the breach of contract as it, as it is of a parent to a child that was shocking to me. I think those three were really really impactful to me. And whose lives do you think have kind of came back to me like, wow, you know, your your exposure of this or your perspective on this has really changed my life. What types of uh, success stories have you gotten from, you know, your podcast and the impact that it's had on your audience and your community that you have? You know, I love to hear people say this made a difference to me because they they lived through this or that I personally lived through trauma and came out on the other side with some monicum of faith and hope. And that's really the audience that I, I want to address is people who um, or that I that I speak to on the podcast is people that have come through trauma with faith and hope. That being said, those are the stories that I like to hear back from other people is they say, wow, if somebody could go through that struggle, that challenge, and come through with faith and hope, then I can too. And those are the kinds of responses that I hear from my community that listen and that give me a sense of of purpose and design to what I do. If you go back in time, and speak to a younger self, what would you say to her? I would say deal with life as it comes. Deal with life on life's terms instead of running away from it. I didn't know how much trauma I was carrying with me and how it was impacting my life. And while some things I dealt with, there were other things in my life that I didn't deal with and it ended up affecting me. It it had a catastrophic effect later on. So I think I would say to my younger self, figure out what you don't know and deal with it. That's what I would say. Very good. And what do you mean by kind of deal with it? I'm just interested to know. Whether it be in a therapeutic environment, um, whether it be with uh, mentoring conversations with people, um, 
whether it is needing to deal with medication to help out with whatever you're dealing with, whatever is a, a helpful piece or aspect to revealing those things in your life, whether it be spiritual direction, um, any, any number of those modalities, I would say that's dealing with it. Great. And are there any other final words you would like to bring to the audience? This has been an excellent interview. Well, thank you. And thank you for the time to talk. And I've enjoyed it too. I would just say that if people want to know more about uh, my story or about what I'm about, um, jillreilly.com is where the podcast and the blog and all of those things kind of find their home. Uh, And again, I just thank you for your time and, and the opportunity to share my story. Thank you again. All right, I am Jimbo Paris, and this is the Jimbo Paris Show. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Jimbo Paris Show. 